Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When the Lord Jesus was performing his ministry, his ministry was to the Jews. His ministry was to the people in Israel. His ministry was not to the entire world. That was not the focus of his ministry, although he did help some people who were not considered to be Israelites. That is true. But the predominant message that he had was that he was the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. As a result of that, the early church that developed after he died and rose again from the dead, the early church also assumed that position. They assumed that belief that the Lord Jesus was only here for the purpose of reaching out to the Jewish people. That was why he was here. And so if you wanted to be a part of the kingdom that he was establishing, if you wanted to be a part of the beliefs that he was conveying, if you wanted to be a part of the development of the church, then you were expected to be a Jew. That was the expectation. And, of course, the primary message that he was communicating while he was here was the message of the Old Covenant, the message of the Law of Moses, because that was the covenant that was in effect when he was here conducting his ministry. And so, as a result, the assumption was that if a person was to live a life believing in the Lord Jesus, the assumption was was that they would be a good Jew and they would live a life in devotion to the Law of Moses. That was an assumption of the early church, and the reason why they assumed this was, first of all, because that is what the Lord Jesus told them. He told them that while he was conducting his ministry, but again, the reason why he did was because that was the covenant that was in effect. And then the second reason why was because they did not really understand right away the implications of what Christ Jesus had actually accomplished for them in instituting a new covenant and what that new covenant was, what that new covenant was about. They did not understand that. In other words, the early church did not have everything all together right away. They did not have a complete, full understanding of the gospel, what it meant, the implications of what Jesus had really done for them and for the entire world. These are things that they grew in a knowledge of. These are things that they grew to understand and matured in their faith, becoming more mature believers Over the course of time, as they walked in the faith that was presented to them, that they were beginning to experience. For many years, the church did continue this way. However, there was a point when the early church finally acknowledged, through a miracle of God, they discovered and acknowledged that a Gentile could actually be saved before first becoming a Jew. You see, they did believe that a Gentile could be saved, but if they wanted to be saved, they had to first convert to Judaism, and then after that, then they could also believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and then they would receive the salvation that was offered by him. But in Acts chapter 10, we have the description of the Lord working in the lives of the early apostles, showing them that a Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. This was a very pivotal moment in the history of the early church and the development of the early church, a very important moment to pay attention to. And so beginning in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, 
a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is the description of the Lord our God intervening in the life of Cornelius, a man who lived in Caesarea, who was definitely a Gentile, who was not considered to be a Jew. The Lord sent an angel to him to go and send for the Apostle Peter. Cornelius was selected probably because of the sincerity of heart that he had. This was explained in verse 4 when he said to him that your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, it's very easy to look at verse 4 and develop a new doctrine out of this, such as just make sure that you pray an awful lot, make sure that you give an awful lot, especially to those who have need, and as a result, this will all be built up and sent up before the Lord your God as a memorial to him, and it will get his attention. Now, I do not believe that that is what was intended to be conveyed here. I do not believe that that is how we are to live, that we are to live continually trying to build memorials before God and so that we can get his attention and he can bestow to us special blessings in our life. I do not believe that that's how we function. However, the Lord our God was going to select someone who was going to be used to demonstrate that a Gentile could actually be saved. The Lord our God needed to find a Gentile who apparently wanted to receive the message or would be willing to believe the message once it was received, once it was given to him, once it was received by him through someone else. He needed to find someone who would definitely respond to the message once it was conveyed, the message of the gospel. Cornelius was quite likely the best candidate for the Lord our God to reach out to, considering that not all of the Gentiles were going to be responsive to this message. The Lord our God picked Cornelius because it appeared that he was believing in him to a certain degree already. And so to convey to him the full message of the gospel, he quite likely would respond to it. I personally believe that that's why he selected Cornelius and that the prayers and the alms, the gifts that Cornelius was giving to other people who had need was just simply a means by which our God used him in order to select him. But this was a major event in the history of the church, and it was not about telling us that we could establish a memorial before God. This was about telling us that a Gentile can actually be saved. And it turns out that this only needed to occur one time in history, as far as I can tell, and this occurred with Cornelius. It needed to occur with somebody. The Lord our God needed to pick some Gentile to be the first one to actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. And so that's what this is really about. This is about the conversion of a Gentile. It is not about trying to set up memorials before God. And so continuing on in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And so while the men who Cornelius sent to Peter were approaching Peter, were approaching where he was located at, he also was receiving a message from God. And so our God had to personally intervene in this matter. He had to personally intervene in the life of Cornelius. He had to personally intervene in the life of Peter in order to get these two guys together so that Peter would communicate to Cornelius the message of the gospel so that Cornelius would believe in the message of the gospel so that Cornelius could be saved. That's what's going on here. The Lord our God is doing this personally. But what's very interesting is that he uses the dietary laws. He uses these animals as an illustration for Peter, as a vision for Peter, in order to convey a very important truth, and that is that he is able to reach out to the Gentiles, that he's able to go and visit with the Gentiles. Quite often people refer to this passage, Acts chapter 10, in order to try and give support and evidence that we are no longer required to live in accordance with the dietary laws. However, I'd like to draw your attention to Acts chapter 10, verse 28, that really the intent was something a little bit different. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, it says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And so the conclusion of what the Lord did in Peter's life in this vision that he gave Peter in Acts chapter 10 was perceived by Peter as a message to tell Peter that he is not to consider all people unclean, that all people are considered to be clean and holy to a certain degree, so that he can go and visit with them, so that he can go and speak with them and associate with them. This is the conclusion that Peter came to. And so because of that, I hesitate quite often whenever I get into discussions about the dietary laws, I hesitate to go to this chapter in the scriptures in order to try to make the point that we are no longer required to live in accordance with the dietary laws. You know, technically, the Gentiles were never required to live in accordance with the dietary laws. He never gave that commandment to the Gentiles. He only gave that to the Israelites. Now, I myself am an Israelite. I am a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And so does that mean that I am required to live in obedience to the dietary laws? No, I don't believe that either. That's not what I believe. I do believe that the dietary laws were very important, but the reason why they were important had to do with this important issue of reuniting the Jew with the Gentile here at this time in the course of history. You see, the dietary laws were originally used by our God, really, in order to separate the nation of Israel from the Gentile world. That really was the primary purpose of the dietary laws. The dietary laws were given in order to isolate the children of Israel from the Gentiles, and if you were to follow and obey all of those laws explicitly, you would be very much isolated from most everyone who is around you in order to live in obedience to those laws, if you really wanted to do that. But this was very important. It was necessary because the Lord our God needed to accomplish several purposes through the nation of Israel, and he needed them to be isolated from the other communities, from the other nations, in order to effectively accomplish his purposes, and the dietary laws were used for that purpose. 
But once that purpose was accomplished, which was to eventually bring about the Messiah, once the Messiah was brought about, he then reused these dietary laws through this vision that he gave Peter, not to say that the dietary laws are no longer to be observed. He used this vision in order to show us that the Jew and the Gentile can now be reunited to be one in Christ. Now, having said that, I want you to know that I do not believe that we are to live in accordance with the dietary laws. Even if you did, what do you suppose you're going to really gain from that? Well, people will say things like, well, there are advantages from a health perspective that you can be a much healthier person. Well, certainly I can appreciate that. And for that reason, I tend to live in obedience to the dietary laws to a certain degree. I certainly do, but not because I'm concerned about how that's going to change my relationship with my God. But for health reasons, I do consider that to be of value. But that's not what he said. He said that they were to be obeyed in order to ensure that the people would be distinct, that they would be separated from the other people in the world. That was why our God gave us those laws. And so for us to assume that they were given for a different purpose, while that purpose may be valid, I don't believe that that's a valid reason in order to justify the use of those laws in the context that many people are trying to use them, which is not just in order to be healthy, but they truly do believe that their right standing with their God is going to be sustained or obtained as a result of their obedience. You know, what's also very interesting about the dietary laws is that the Lord our God told us precisely what the penalty would be in the event that we violated these laws. And when having these kinds of discussions... This is one of the questions that I ask, and that is, what is the penalty for eating a bacon double cheeseburger or some other kind of food that would definitely be considered to be unclean? Because our God described what animals we are to eat and what things we are not to eat. And so what would be the penalty if you were to violate the dietary laws? I will ask this question, and quite often I get one of two answers. One is Death. He definitely gave the commandments, and when he gave the commandments, he said that a violation of the commandment is sin, and the wages of sin is death, and so if we were to break the dietary laws, then we would be worthy of death. That's probably the most common answer that I get. And the other answer that I get is, I don't know. And either way, regardless of the answer that is given, I will often follow up the question by encouraging them to go and find out what the penalty really is, because neither one of those penalties are the answer. Death is not the answer, and I don't know is not a valid answer. You can know. All you have to do is just read the law. If you want to really believe the law, if you want to live your life in accordance with the law, I would venture to say that it would be worthwhile for you to read the law and look at the law and see what the penalty is for violation of the law. And what's interesting is, is that you read through the law, and it says very clearly, this is in Leviticus chapter 11, it says that if you violate the commandment by eating something that you shouldn't be eating, If you do that, then the penalty is to be unclean until evening. That's the penalty for violating the dietary laws, to be unclean until evening, which means that you leave the camp or you leave the city limits until the sun goes down, and then you can either wash your clothes or yourself, but then when you return the following day, then you can continue living your life, a life of repentance and obedience and trying to live in accordance with the law of Moses before your God. You can continue to do that. That was the penalty for eating something that you weren't supposed to be eating. And yet there are so few people who know hardly anything, really, about the dietary laws, and yet they live their lives according to the dietary laws as best they can. I did do a formal teaching on this subject on the dietary laws, and so I'm not going to get into that in detail in this broadcast. 
And so instead, I would like to encourage you to get a hold of the two messages that I did on the dietary laws. They are very important, especially when it comes to this subject of understanding how the Lord our God accomplished the salvation that we do have through the Messiah, and also how he reunited the Jew with the Gentile to become one in Christ Jesus. It is a very important subject and has a very important role in terms of our understanding of the scriptures and how our God provided us with the salvation that we do experience right now. And so Peter did effectively violate the dietary laws. He did do that. This is described in Acts chapter 10 verse 17 up until verse 33. Acts chapter 10 verse 17 to verse 33. He actually did go to the home of Cornelius and as a result of him going into Cornelius's home and associating with him and visiting with him, he definitely became ritually unclean because of the dietary laws and some other laws with regards to cleanliness, uncleanliness, the idea of being holy or unholy before your God. There are many laws that we could refer to. The important thing to consider, of course, at this time is just that it was forbidden for him to go and visit with these people. But he went and he visited with these people because the Lord our God told him to, told him to directly. This would probably be the only way that he would go and do this, but he did. He responded to the Lord his God. He responded to what the Lord told him to do. He went and he visited with Cornelius. And so continuing on in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, it says, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Now, this is a very important statement. He understands now that God is not one to show partiality. You know what this means? This means that before Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter believed that God did show partiality. That's what he believed. He did believe that God was partial to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. That's what he believed. But because of these circumstances that were taking place in his life here in Acts chapter 10, he discovers that God does not show any partiality. And then in verse 35, Acts chapter 10, verse 35, he says, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, I don't believe that this is quite correct. I don't believe that the Lord our God requires someone to do right and necessarily fear him before he would be welcome to him, that the Lord would require him to first be living a life of righteousness or living a life of fear of God before the Lord our God would welcome him. I do believe that our God will welcome anyone and everyone. He does welcome anyone. He is willing to receive anyone who believes the gospel, who is willing to respond to the truth that our God has given, who will meet the criteria of being saved. Certainly a person does need to believe that there is a God and have a fear of him in the sense of having an awe towards him in order to consider what he has to offer and recognize that it is their only hope of ever experiencing salvation or eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Those are definitely some important truths that we do need to pay attention to. However, I believe that Peter still would need to mature a little bit and to recognize that not only does his God want to reach out to everyone, but he doesn't put any prerequisites on that, such as doing what is right. 
I believe that this is something that Peter would still need to mature in in his understanding of. Now, consider this. Consider the fact that at this point, right here, the verse above, he's finally discovering that the Lord his God would consider reaching out to someone who is not a Jew. If that's the case, wouldn't you suspect that there are probably some other things that he doesn't quite have a complete understanding of quite yet as well? Would you expect that? Would you think that, oh, this great revelation that a Gentile could actually be saved like a Jew can be saved is enough in order to give them the greatest maturity that any believer in the history of humanity has ever had? Do you recognize that a Gentile can be saved, that you don't have to first be a Jew in order to be saved? If you recognize that, then you know more than Peter did before Acts chapter 10. And so don't be surprised if you still see some evidence that he needs to mature a little bit more in his faith. We know that later on, when he went into the region of Galatia, that Paul certainly had a confrontation with him over the dietary laws, even later on in his life. Paul confronted him over that, asking him why he was trying to encourage the Gentiles to live like Jews through his refusal to eat with them. Why would you think that Peter had it all together here in Acts chapter 10, when he obviously didn't have it all together later on when he was meeting with the Apostle Paul in the church in Galatia? So consider that, and then continue into verse 36. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it says, "...the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him." We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Judge of the living and the dead. I believe that he is referring to those who are still alive and those who died previously. This can also be perceived as those who are alive in Christ and those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Those are a couple of different ways in order to consider verse 42. But then in verse 43 it says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. But then in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. In other words, all those who heard the message that Peter was conveying, they came to a moment in their life when they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And because of their belief... The Lord provided them with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were saved. Salvation is the restoration of the Holy Spirit. That's the life of God, the very life of God that was breathed within Adam and Eve, that departed from within them when they violated the law of sin and death, that they ate from the wrong tree, they died. And so as a result, everyone who has been born into this world from Adam and Eve are born into this world spiritually dead. But through the restoration of the Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus, we can be made alive, which is the solution to the problem of being dead. If you're dead, you don't necessarily need to be forgiven. It certainly is very helpful. 
What's more important is that you need to be made alive. The forgiveness of sins forgives us of all of our sins so that there is no sin left unforgiven that will cause that life to depart from within us. However, forgiveness of sins is not salvation. The restoration of the Holy Spirit is what salvation is. And so in verse 45, Acts chapter 10, verse 45, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. The evidence of that is described in verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And so that was it. That was Acts chapter 10. A Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew. How would they have become a Jew? They would have become a Jew by being baptized. And again, I described the subject of baptism in the series of messages I did on baptism, where I described the history of baptism, its codification, its purposes, and how it was used by the Lord our God in order to effectively communicate the gospel. But that's the point. The reason why those people were amazed was because a Gentile actually got saved. That was what was so amazing. But not everyone was amazed by this revelation that a Gentile could actually be saved without first becoming a Jew, at least not right away. If you continue to read into Acts chapter 11, it says, beginning in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. In other words, how dare you go and meet with those uncircumcised people? Who cares whether or not they received the word of God? That apparently is not their priority here. Their priority has to do with whether or not Peter was living in obedience to the dietary laws. That was their concern. Apparently they had no concern with regards to the Gentiles as to whether or not they could be saved, as to whether or not they could receive the word of God. This is a religious attitude that quite often we have to compete with, whereas many people are more concerned more concerned about what they believe they should be doing or what they should not be doing, and so therefore what you should be doing and what you should not be doing, and are so concerned with, or even so consumed with, what we are doing in our flesh, that they have no interest, really, whatsoever, in terms of what is taking place within somebody's spirit. And so Peter gives his defense. His defense was very simple, and that was, "...who was I that I could withstand God?" The living God intervened at this time, and he simply saved these Gentiles. He directed Peter to go and meet with them. He directed Peter to go and speak with them. He gave Peter the words to speak to them. This was a direct intervention of the living God, giving him direction, giving Peter direction through an angel. And so he simply was obedient to his God. And so if they had a problem with that, they would have to take it up with the Lord. In response to that, they then really recognized that a Gentile could actually be saved They recognized that and they accepted that reality and then proceeded to move on with the development of the early church. But I will explain more about this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. 
Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. 